If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10. As we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again, beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Now, In this passage that we're considering this morning, we have this, yet again, another highly charged incident between our Lord Jesus Christ and his Jewish opponents. And John gives us the setting for this in verses 22-23. This occurred at the Feast of Dedication, which we would know in our context as Hanukkah. And as you know, Hanukkah occurs in December, and so this is perfectly fitting that John tells us here in verse 23 that it was winter. Now, the Feast of Dedication was the feast that was instituted by the Jews to commemorate the cleansing of the temple after the Jews retook it from the idolatrous Greeks who had been under the leadership of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 160s BC. During that time, the Greek overlords of the Jews had taken the temple away from them and had instituted pagan sacrifices. 
And a few years later, after much fighting, the Jews under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus recaptured the temple, cleansed it from the idolatry that had been going on there, and instituted this feast, this feast of dedication, as a means of celebrating the restoration of true worship at the temple of God. And though this celebration was not instituted by divine command, nevertheless, our Lord Jesus was there in Jerusalem at this feast and was presumably participating in it. The feast was centered on the temple and the reinstitution of worship at the temple. And Jesus is there at at the temple during this feast. It wasn't commanded by God, but nevertheless, it was a decent, reasonable, and faithful custom of God's people. And our Lord was there for it. As the reformer Henry Bullinger expressed it, the feast of dedication was ordained by Judas Maccabeus with the consent of all the church in memory that the temple was restored and the people delivered from the tyranny of King Antiochus, as is to be read in the fourth chapter of the first book of Maccabees. And Christ our Lord did honor that feast of dedication with an holy sermon. So Jesus preaches a sermon, as it were, there at the feast of dedication. And so, as we consider this, let's consider it under a few main headings, three main headings. First of all, Jesus' works showed that he was God. Jesus' works showed that he was God. Secondly, we'll see the safety of Jesus' sheep. And thirdly, we'll see the great divide. The great divide between those who believe and those who do not. Jesus' works showed that he was God the safety of Jesus' sheep, and the great divide. And so the reason for which Christ preaches this sermon, if we can call it such, is because of the question that the Jews pose to him in verse 24. They come up to him at the Feast of Dedication and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. These Jews act as if they simply just needed to have it laid out for them a little bit bit more plainly than it had been. It was almost as if they're saying to Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, just just tell us. Just tell us. We'll we'll believe. We'll accept us. Don't don't leave us hanging. If you're you're really him, we just want to know. According to the way they frame it, it's almost just a matter of information. Just let us know. Just tell us. The fact of the matter is, Jesus had already done so. This means that it wasn't just a matter of information. It was actually a matter of the heart. And so Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now it's true, on the one hand, that Jesus had not said to the Jews of Jerusalem, I am the Messiah, period. I am the Christ, period. But he had said enough for them to know that he did, in fact, claim to be the Messiah. He had claimed that God was his father, back in John chapter 5. And this was, in the minds of the Jews, as we saw back in chapter 5, enough for them to conclude that Jesus was making himself equal with God, and they tried to kill him because of that. In the latter portion of John 5, Jesus makes it very clear that he did, in fact, claim to be equal with God. John the Baptist had testified about him. The works that Jesus did had testified about him. God the Father had testified about him in Holy Scripture. But as a general rule, these testimonies that Jesus was the Christ did not sway the Jews. He had told them. They didn't believe. The end of John chapter 8, he makes the point again to them when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. 
He was claiming to be God, and they knew it. They picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus had been clear enough in what he had said. He had also been clear enough in what he had done. His works testified of him. He says in verse 25 here, The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now let's consider this for a moment. It is certainly true that we read of miracles performed in Scripture by other people. right? Jesus wasn't the only one in the Bible who did miracles. We read of prophets in the Old Testament, men like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. We read of the apostles in the New Testament performing miracles. And there are even miraculous works that were performed by ungodly people. Right? Think of the magicians of Egypt when they're kind of dueling, as it were, with miracles and going back and forth. There's some ungodly miracles going on. Likewise, God warned his people in the law in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, about false prophets who might come to them, who might work some sign or wonder, seeking to lead the people astray into idolatry. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, we're told that when the man of lawlessness, the final antichrist, comes, that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. And so we understand from Scripture that godly men in the Old Testament and New Testament performed miracles to the glory of God, and we understand at the same time there can be miraculous works that are false wonders, which are performed in the deception of wickedness. The point is, Jesus wasn't the only one who performed miracles. And so how is it that Jesus can say here, What he says in verse 25, how can he appeal to his works and say, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And later, verses 37 38, he says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And he would later say much the same thing to Philip. John 14, 11, believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Or how was it he could say in John 15, 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. So what is it in particular about the works of Jesus that point him out as the Christ in such a way that The works of others do not. The answer lies in the fact that Jesus did such works as no mere man could do. He did works that no one could do unless they had infinite power. Jesus did the kind of works that no one could do except they were one with the Father and fully divine. And it is instructive, I think, to compare the miracles of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospels with the miracles that are performed by others, either by the prophets in the Old Testament time or by the apostles in the New Testament time. And we find a a noticeable difference. Compared to the miracles of Christ, the miracles that occurred in the Old Testament time were comparatively few and far between. When the prophets of old performed miracles, they were conscious that the power was not in them and from them to do the miracle but that it was the power of God that must do the miracle. And I think we get a 
a good glimpse of this when Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. And so we read in 1 Kings 17, 21 and 22, that Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. So we're told in 1 Kings 17. The point is, Elijah couldn't perform the miracle of himself. He asked the Lord to do it. And we see something similar in Acts chapter 9 when the apostle Peter raised Dorcas or Tabitha from the dead. We read there in Acts chapter 9 verse 40 that Peter knelt down and prayed and turning to the body he said, Tabitha arise. Elijah and Peter prayed to God for those particular miracles to happen. Or in the case of the lame beggar, Acts chapter 3, Peter said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And then he would go on to explain the miracle in these terms. He says, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him that gives him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see how the the prophets and the apostles, they're they're praying to God, asking God to do the work. They're appealing to, to the name of Jesus. Peter actually says there in Acts 3, why do you look at me as if it's my power or piety that made this man get up and walk? He says, it's not me, it's the name of Jesus. But when we compare these examples with the practice of our Lord in his miraculous works, we see another pattern emerging. And it is a pattern in which Jesus himself in his own power, and his own authority, is working miracles. Now these were certainly not done apart from the Father, for they were the Father's works, as he says here in verses 37 and 38. They were done in the Father's name, as he says here. But what we find is that he was not beseeching the Father that a miracle would be performed, nor was he saying verbally, audibly, as he performed them, in the name of God the Father, receive your sight. In the name of God the Father, Demon, be gone. Rather, what we see is that Jesus was saying things like what we find in Mark 9, 25, when he cast out a demon. He said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Whereas Paul cast out the demon and the slave girl in Philippi, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Jesus says, I command you, come out. And... Likewise, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, he says, Little girl, I say to you, get up. When he raised the son of the widow in Nain, Luke seven fourteen, he said to him, Young man, I say to you, arise. When the leper came to him in Matthew chapter 8, he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. When Jesus calmed the storm on the sea in Mark chapter 4, And said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Jesus commands and the wind and the sea calm down. You see the point, the the miracles of Jesus are unique. He doesn't need to pray and ask the Father to work a miracle in order for a wonder to be performed. He doesn't need to command that it be done in the name of the Father as the Apostles would later invoke the name of Jesus in working miracles. Jesus himself says the word, and by his authority, it was done. 
the miracles of Jesus were different in this way from, from the miracles of the prophets and the apostles. They were the miracles of one who had power in himself, one who had authority in himself. These were the works of one who is God in the flesh. And that means then if Jesus' miracles stand out as unique from those of the prophets and the apostles, they certainly stand at an even greater distance from false wonders that are performed in the deception of wickedness. The works of Jesus were not performed for the purpose of deceiving. They were not performed for the purpose of drawing men and women away from God into idolatry. Rather, the works of Jesus were performed for the purpose of drawing men and women unto God. By means of his works, Jesus was showing who he was. He was showing that he was the only begotten Son of God, that he was the eternal Word who was made flesh. He was showing by his works that he was in the Father and that the Father was in him. Or to use his words from verse 30, he was showing that he and the Father are one. That they are one in being, one in nature, one in essence. They are one and the same God, though they are distinct persons within the Godhead. I think the Athanasian Creed is helpful here in reminding us that the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Now certainly the mystery of the Holy Trinity is great and beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but it is nevertheless true, nevertheless essential. The opening verse even of the Gospel of John points us toward this mystery in that it tells us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Son of God was with God in the beginning. The Son of God was God in the beginning. He has been God the Son from all eternity. He was, as John expressed it in John 1.18, the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father. The Father was in Him. He was in the Father. He and the Father are one God. The works which Jesus did then were meant to convey this very thing. It's true, he had not said to them, I am the Messiah, in those precise words. But he had said enough for them to know he had done, enough for them to see so that they could know that he was the Messiah and that he claimed to be the Messiah. Their problem was not a lack of seeing or a lack of having heard the right thing. They had seen and heard enough. They did not believe, nor did they want to believe. Jesus speaks to the reason why they did not believe in verse 26 when he says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That brings us into our, our second point, which is the safety of Jesus' sheep. So these Jewish interlocutors, as it were, are not his sheep. They're not because they do not hear his voice, they do not believe his words, they do not follow him. But Jesus' sheep, on the other hand, do hear his voice. They believe what he says. They see the evidence of his works. And because of the works of Jesus, they look to him. They listen to what he says. They believe him and they follow him. Such are the ones that Jesus spoke of in John 6.37 
when he said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. The Father has given the sheep to Christ, the shepherd, and all who are given by the Father to the Son will come to him. But those who are not given will not come to him. And so we read the words of Jesus in John six forty four when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If the Father is not drawing someone to Christ, they cannot come. And they cannot come because they will not come. Apart from the drawing of the Father, they have no desire to come. They walk in the darkness, they love the darkness. They stay in the darkness, apart from the drawing of the Father. In the case of these Jews, they did not believe because they were not of his sheep. They had not been given by the Father to Christ. They had not been drawn by the Father so that they would come to Christ. The Holy Spirit had not opened their hearts to the truth which Jesus was proclaiming. They did not believe because they were not his sheep. What this means then is that faith is a mark of those who are called and drawn by the Father to Christ. Faith is a mark of being a sheep. These people could not believe because they were not of his sheep. But notice in verses 27 and 29 what Jesus says uh, about his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus' hand and the Father's hand are one. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Their hand is the same. Their power is the same. Their essence and being is the same. One in might, one in power, one in glory. The Father as God is greater than all, greater than all people, greater than all angels and demons, greater than Satan himself and all of creation. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is one with the Father. Their power is one. To quote the Athanasian Creed again, So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. And that's good news for the sheep of Jesus. This means that no one who is one of Christ's sheep can be plucked from Christ's hand. We cannot be plucked from the Father's hand. This is the doctrine that is known as the perseverance of the saints. As we express this in our confession of faith, we believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end, that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors, that a special providence watches over their welfare, and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. That is to say that those who are truly born again will persevere in the faith. True believers endure unto the end. No one plucks them out of Christ's hand. No one and nothing in the world can do it. Those who are Christ's sheep persevere in their attachment to Christ. And they persevere not because they're so strongly attached, but because Jesus so strongly holds them to himself. Satan himself and all the demons of hell cannot pluck one of Christ's sheep out of his hands. And this no one here includes even we ourselves. 
For if we were left to the weakness of our flesh, if we were given over to our own meager efforts, we would certainly fall. We would, every one of us, fall away from Christ, left to ourselves and our own devices. But the blessed truth of these words of Jesus is that no one, no one can pluck his sheep from his hand. We cannot even pluck ourselves from his hand. And we should praise God for that. But lest we misunderstand, this doctrine does need to be carefully framed, carefully expressed. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints has sometimes, in common parlance, been referred to as once saved, always saved. Now, strictly speaking, I would have to say the expression is correct. If you've been truly saved by Jesus, you will be saved by Jesus for all time and for all eternity. Strictly speaking, those words are true. Do not the words of verse 28 say as much. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. It's true. Those who are the sheep of Jesus will never perish. They have eternal life. It cannot be snatched away from the Father's hand or from the hand of Christ. The Father is greater than all. Jesus is one with the Father. There is one and only one Almighty. But again, the doctrine needs to be carefully framed and expressed The words of J.C. Ryle were helpful when he said, The man who boasts that he shall never be cast away and never perish while he is living in sin is a miserable self-deceiver. It is the perseverance of saints and not of sinners and wicked people that is promised here. We're talking about the perseverance of saints, not the perseverance of the wicked. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints should offer no comfort to those who walked an aisle once as a child or prayed the sinner's prayer and lived like the devil for the rest of their lives. We're not talking about even someone who thoughtfully decided that they wanted to follow Jesus and was subsequently baptized and joined the church at age 30, only to get pulled aside into unrepentant unrepentant immorality five years later and continue on in unrepentance for the rest of his life. We're not talking about someone who professed faith in Christ only to leave their profession, leave the church, deconstruct their faith, hate the church, and turn their back on the word of God for the rest of their lives. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. Such people, as those few descriptors, are not Jesus' sheep. They are evidently not Jesus' sheep. They do not give the marks of belonging to Christ. According to what Jesus says in verse 27, his sheep are those who hear his voice and who follow him. Those who professed him but do not follow him, are evidently not his sheep. Those who currently profess him and yet make no attempt to follow him are evidently not his sheep. And certainly those who do not profess him are not his sheep. John speaks of those who fall away, 1 John 2.19, by saying they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they All are not of us. Now, when we see someone who has been a professing Christian fall into a serious and heinous sin, concerning which they seem, from all we can tell, to be unrepentant, there are a couple of possibilities as to what might be happening in the life of such a person. One is that they might be showing their true colors, that in fact they are not one of Christ's sheep, that they are not one of us, as John put it. It might be, however, that such a person 
is a true believer who is one of Christ's sheep and is actually one upon whom Christ is holding on to with a grip that will not let them go. True believers can sin horribly and may seem to be unrepentant for a time. Those in this latter category, however, will be brought again to true repentance. And just as a side note, we, we need to be careful when, we, when we're dealing with someone in such a condition, we don't know, right? We don't know whether they have been saved by God and whether God will draw them back to repentance again or whether they have not been saved by God at all. And in both cases, our counsel to such a person needs to be the same. You need to repent and believe the gospel. I don't know what happened five years ago when you were baptized, but I can tell you right now that things are not right. You need to repent. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, our counsel to them must be the same because the remedy is the same in either case. If they've never been saved, they need to be saved. Repent and believe. If they have been saved and have gone astray, they still need to repent. They still need to believe. I think the fifth head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort helpfully expresses the case of someone who has fallen into sin but yet is a true believer. They say, although that the power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace be led astray by the desires of the flesh and give in to them. For this reason, they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led away into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they are sometimes so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time, until after they have returned to the way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face again shines upon them. There may be cases when, for a time, it appears that a particular person who actually is a sheep doesn't appear to be a sheep. Such times, again, the counsel that we need to give them is to repent and believe the gospel. We need to remember texts like James five nineteen and 20, where James says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need to remember scripture texts like 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. We need to be reaching out to such people. We need to be seeking to, to turn them from their ways. And we need to be praying. 1 John 5.16. He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Praise God for the gift of repentance. The repentance is not just for sinners, it's also for saints. It's not just for those who are not sheep yet, it's also for sheep who have gone astray. Praise God for the gift of repentance. And praise God also for the truth of verses 28 and 29. This is a treasure 
for us to cherish as believers. This is a treasure to cherish in our weakest moments because then it's laid clear and bare to us that if it weren't for Christ holding on to us, we would fall. It's also a treasure to cherish in our strongest moments because even in our strongest and best moments, our moments when we are full of faith, full of assurance, full of godly desires and godly actions, even then we need to remember that it is not the strength of our grasp on the Lord that keeps us safe. Our best grip on the Lord, even in the best of times as believers, is only tenuous. There's no safety or confidence to be found in the strength of our grip. Rather, our strength, our comfort, our security is to be found in the strength of the Lord's grip on us. And indeed, this is the direction to which our Lord's words point. He does not say, no one will ever be able to pull their hands away from me. He doesn't say that. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, young children, if an adult has ever held on to your hand in a parking lot or as you were going across the street, you can, you can understand this. You can understand what Jesus is talking about. In that time, when you're out in the parking lot or when you're out in the street, you are being kept safe because of the grown-up who is holding on to you. Now, for those of us who are older, our memories of those days might be a little bit cloudy, a little bit fuzzy. But if you've ever held on to the hand of a small child in a parking lot or crossing the street, you understand this dynamic that is going on here as well. The child is kept safe, not on the basis of their grip on your hand. Again, it's only tenuous at best, at best, right? They're not kept safe because of their grip on your hand. They're kept safe, rather, because you're hanging on to them. And the dynamic, of course, is the same with Jesus and his sheep. We're not kept safe by the strength of our grip, but because of Christ's grip on us. This is great news and strong encouragement to those who are the sheep of Christ. But, again, there is a great divide here, right? And this is our, our third point, the great divide between those who are the sheep of Christ and those who aren't. We see these Jews here who had come to speak to Christ. They were not his sheep. They did not believe in him. They didn't believe his words. They didn't believe his works. And as such, they took strong offense at what he had said. When he says that he and the Father are one, they pick up stones to stone him to death, as we find in verse 31. They give the explanation for their intended action, verse 33. For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. These men understood Jesus. They understood him correctly. This had been the reason why the Jews had been wanting to kill him all along. Chapter 5, chapter 8, here again, in chapter 10. They tried to do it now again. But notice how Jesus responds to their attacks. He went to Scripture, to, uh, to Psalm 82.6. This is why we, uh, we sang Psalm 82 this morning in, uh, in our singing of the psalm. As uh, we sang it, Gods you are, I have declared it. You are sons of the Most High. In Psalm 82 and Jesus' argument that he makes here, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. 
Psalm 82, 6, the Lord is speaking to, to human rulers, right? This is, this is the context of, of Psalm 82 as we've, as we've sung it. There's, there's injustice going on. The Lord is, is speaking to these, these human rulers. And the Lord speaks to these human rulers, Psalm 82, 6, and he says, I said, you are gods. Now, when the Lord says that, he doesn't mean that these human rulers are divine. But what he did mean was that these human rulers had authority from God given to them to rule. And as such, the Lord says to them, I said, you are gods. And then notice how Jesus argues this in verses 35 and 36. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now the point that Jesus is making here is that if mere human rulers can be called gods in in some sense, then how on earth can you say that Jesus is blaspheming when he claims to be the Son of God? Because he actually is the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, which is to say he's the one whom the Father has set apart for this, this mission of redeeming sinners and been sent into the world to accomplish that. And so Jesus argues from, from the lesser to the greater. If it's all right to call these, these rulers gods, these men who are merely human, then surely it's not blasphemy for the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world to claim that he is the Son of God. So Jesus says, don't go there. Don't charge me with blasphemy. The charge is unsustainable. And then he goes on to, to again, argue his sonship from his works, as, as we've seen. He's letting them know that they didn't have to take his word for things. If they don't believe his words, they can look at his works. The works testified, again, that he was in the Father and the Father was in him. The work proved that he's the Son of God, one with the Father. And, as we know, it turns out that they are not willing to listen to his words or to look at his works. They're still bent on killing him. Notice here, incidentally, the way in which our Lord Jesus Christ views the Scripture. He says in verse 35, The Scripture cannot be broken. That's Jesus' outlook on Scripture. It can't be broken. That is to say, it cannot be objected to or refuted. In other words, it's true. These are God's words. This is God's truth. It was said that in the Jewish Talmud, this manner of speaking shows up frequently. When uh, the Jewish theologians in the Talmud were debating, apparently one might make a point to which another uh, debater would say, it may be broken. In other words, meaning that the point that had just been made can be refuted, can be rebutted, so on. Jesus says here, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture says, I said you are gods. The scripture stands. It cannot be broken. According to Jesus, scripture is authoritative when it speaks, and we therefore must view it the same way. But when Jesus speaks, as he does here, and draws out their anger in the way that he does, it's no wonder that the episode ends the way that it does in verse 39. So we've been spending time in the Gospel of John. We've seen how these things go down again and again. They want to seize Jesus. He eludes their grasp. The reason is his hour had not yet come. It wasn't yet time for Jesus to die. But notice the contrast there in verses 40 and 42. We have this, this interesting little paragraph right at the end of the chapter. An amazing contrast between the reception of Jesus in Jerusalem as he's there at the Feast of Dedication with his reception out 
in the district beyond the Jordan as he goes there to the place where John had first been baptizing. People are going to Jesus, they're listening to him, they're probably seeing him perform miracles and so on, and they're convinced. They remembered back to the the ministry of John the Baptist, probably two or three years back at this point, and they remembered what John had said about Jesus, and the light bulbs went on. They recognized, wow, what, what John said about this man is actually true. And so they said, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. One writer noted on this point that sermons never die. Now, hopefully that's, hopefully that's a good thing, right? Sermons never die. Herod could cut short his ministry, put him in prison, and have him beheaded. But he could not prevent his words from being remembered. Right? Herod was able to, to cut short the, the days in the ministry of John the Baptist. But he could not prevent the words that John had spoken, could not prevent those words from being remembered and profited upon by those who heard them. The contrast here is noteworthy. These Jews in Jerusalem are ready to kill Jesus, but the people out in the district beyond the Jordan are believing in Jesus and acknowledging the truth of the forerunner, John the Baptist. This is the way that it goes. People will either trust Jesus or they won't. There's a great divide between the two. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And likewise, he says on the other side, Mark 9, 40, He who is not against us is for us. This pretty much sums it up. You're either with Jesus or you are against him. There's no middle ground. You're one of Jesus' sheep or you're not. And in case you're here this morning and you're not one of Jesus' sheep, the preaching of the gospel calls you this morning to turn away from your sins and to believe. To believe that this man, Jesus Christ, is God, that he is one with the Father. This God-man, Jesus Christ, went to the cross, died for sinners so that we could be forgiven from every wicked thing that we have ever done, so that we could be reconciled to God and have eternal life. And so as you think about this, my counsel to you is listen to Jesus' words. Consider his works as they have been recorded for us in Scripture. These people were absolutely correct out there beyond the Jordan when they concluded that everything John had said about Jesus was true. Just think back to what, were, what are some of those snippets that we have of what John the Baptist said about Jesus. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? And obviously, these people could not foresee the cross. They didn't see that Jesus was going there. But that's part of the testimony of John about Jesus. Think about him when he said, He who comes after me was uh, ranks before me because he was before me. He said, I'm not worthy to untie sandal of this man. These people are remembering all these snippets of things they heard from John the Baptist. And they're able to put the pieces together and say, yes, this is true. And so, again, my counsel to you is turn away from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me. After the service, you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about this. And if you've done that already, as many of you have, if not most of you, If indeed you are one of his sheep, then be reminded once again from these words here of how good the good news of the gospel really is. That if you are one of Jesus' sheep, 
you're safe. Paul brings this out so beautifully in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Who is there to uh, bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is there to condemn. Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you. He goes on and, and tells us how nothing will separate us from the love of Christ and that in everything that may come against us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the kind of the, the practical outworking of John chapter 10, 27 through 29. And so this means that we can live for the Lord boldly and without fear. Right? The world is getting very out of hand these days, so it seems. Greater hostility towards Christians, and on and on it goes. Greater rebellion, it appears, at least, against God and his created order and his created designs and so on. But we don't have to be frightened at the wickedness of the world. We don't have to be frightened by the schemes of the devil. We don't even have to be frightened knowing the weakness of our own flesh. Now, this is not to say that we live and walk in foolish bravado. Not at all. We need to take heed. If we think we stand, lest we fall. We have to always be humble, never presumptuous. But nevertheless, we can live with confidence and with boldness. Because Christ holds us and nothing can pry us from his hand. And we are right now being kept by his power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so may God continue, as we find at the end of the book of Jude, may God continue to keep us from stumbling and to cause us to stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. May God be glorified through our Lord Jesus Christ, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these precious words here and a reminder of the fact that it is you who hold us fast. It is you who hold us in your hand. We ask that you would continue to strengthen us, continue to build us up so that we might love you more faithfully so that we might serve you and walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.